When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the biggest science stories of the week. I'm Graham Lawton. New Scientist staff writer, columnist, and occasional podcast host. And I'm Anna Deming, New Scientist features editor. Ron and Tiffany are both on holiday this week, so it's me and Graham in the hot seats. And joining us today is executive editor Richard Webb and science writer Caroline Williams. Hi. Hello. Hello. Coming up on the show, we have news of a gigantic rescue plan for nature. We have dispatches from Mars, another instalment of fiendish science questions asked by kids, and news from the frontiers of slippery physics. We were also going to attempt something I guess we're all wishing for, which is to go COVID-free, but events... Yeah, but before we get stuck in, a couple of notices. We have a soothing new podcast where we've been having a great time mulling over anything that's a welcome distraction from the grind of life under COVID restrictions. It's called The New Scientist Escape Pod, and you can find it at all good podcast outlets. And it is really great. I listened to the latest one this morning. And you can also get a discount subscription to New Scientist with a bargain offer, 20% off. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and claim your 20% discount. But let's start with some potentially good news for the planet, which is not something we hear every day of the week. Richard, you've been working on a special report about what we're calling a rescue plan for nature, which sounds very grand. Yeah, well, it well it is. Um, so for the past 70 years or so, since more or less the Second World War, which is a period that's sometimes called the Great Acceleration, we've been doing some pretty horrible things to the natural world, exploiting and destroying it for our own selfish short-term needs without really much thought for the long-term consequences. And that's led to a series of interconnected crises, climate change, destruction of biodiversity, pollution, land degradation, 
and of course the P word that we're not going to mention this week. And it's clear that far from spurring on our development, the ways of working we've adopted during this great acceleration have come at great cost to us, a great economic cost too. And things have got so bad that we've arrived at the fork in the road that we always knew was coming, but always assumed was far enough down the road not to worry about really. Either we keep destroying with possibly terminal consequences for our own well-being, or we do something different. That different is the rescue plan, right? Right. Well, this year, 2021, will either go down in history as the one where we changed course or the one where we didn't, in which case there may not be a history written about it. If we do the right thing this year, and that means starting now, we will set ourselves up for a decade of reducing our impact on the natural world that we ultimately depend on. And that will put us hopefully firmly on the path to the ultimate goal, which is being back in harmony with nature by 2050. It's it's about turning around that great acceleration into what you might term a great restoration. So quite a big year coming up. What's on the agenda? Well, the first item is the launch of the UN Decade on Ecological Restoration, which will be announced on in World Environment Day, which is on the 5th of June. Its goal is to prevent, halt and hopefully reverse the degradation of ecosystems worldwide, which is a pretty tall order. Prevent, halt and reverse. I mean, the reverse bit suggests it's not just about conservation and protected areas anymore. Yeah, well, there's an estimate that only something like 23% of the ice-free land surface of the world remains untouched by humans. There's so little intact habitat left that we're going to have to fix some of the damage we've already caused. And that requires ecological restoration, which can mean anything from passive rewilding to whole-scale landscape engineering. The goal is to restore an area slightly bigger than the size of India in a decade, which would be the most rapid transformation of Earth's surface caused by humans, even the count, counting the one we've wrought in the past few decades, but in the right direction this time. Crikey, that's some project. But there's even more coming up, right? Yes, well, the world is also gearing up to negotiate a new set of biodiversity targets to replace the ones that expired last year. Uh, and they expired with a kind of whimper when, when the whistle was blown, the score was environmental destruction 20, biodiversity nil. None of the 20 targets <laughs> we set had been met. The new targets, which are due to be negotiated at a huge conference in Kunming in China in May, again, P word permitting. And, and again, they're going to last for a decade and we simply have to do better this time than we did last Uh, and then it doesn't stop there in november come the next set of climate talks in glasgow here in the uk and this is really where the rubber hits the road to to use a rather inappropriate metaphor because ecological restoration and, and biodiversity targets will come to naught if we don't bend the climate curve towards a level of warming that although it might not be pretty we can live with So the 2020s will be a decade where all of these solutions to those planetary crises I mentioned start to converge. This is starting to sound like Mission Impossible 2021, but haven't we been here before? You said it yourself that the last set of biodiversity targets were a total write-off. So is there any reason to think it'll be different this time? Well, yeah, that, that is a legitimate concern, of course. And it's It's worth pointing out that there are some pockets of success in biodiversity. We also have a story in the magazine this week about some of the the 50 or so species of bird and mammal that would have gone extinct without conservation measures. So we can make a difference. 
But there are wider trends, too, that give grounds for optimism. Global sentiment has really shifted in the past decade and not just about climate change. It isn't now just scientists and environmentalists beating their heads against brick walls. Politicians and finance and big business increasingly accept that we have no room for procrastination, that this really is a question not just of the natural world's health, but of human health and wealth too. And the pandemic may have helped that particular penny to drop. It is really now or never. As we said at the top, we really wanted to go COVID-free this week, but events got in the way. Graham, you've dug up a story that could have major implications for the next phase of the pandemic, haven't you? Yeah, I, I, I have, and I'm afraid it's uh, potentially more bad news. Oh, here we go. But potentially, I mean, we must not overplay this and we don't really understand the significance of it yet. But there is a new type of mutant to worry about. So we've gotten used to hearing about new variants of the virus, like the B117 variant discovered in Kent. There seems to be more transmissible and similar variants that were first detected in South Africa and Brazil. And they're what you might call kind of everyday mutants. You know, they acquire an odd random changes here and there. And every now and again, one pops up that makes a difference to the virus's biology. But virologists have long recognised that coronaviruses have the potential to mutate in a much more radical way. How's that then? Well, it's a process called recombination. And the details are a little bit complex. But suffice to say that two different coronaviruses can mash their genomes together to form a hybrid virus. And I take it this has happened now. Yes, it has. And again, we mustn't overplay it, but scientists in the US have spotted what is almost certainly a recombinant SARS-CoV-2 virus in a database of viral genomes. Now, it's not clear yet whether this virus is circulating or if it's anything to worry about, but the fact that it's happened is, let's say, of interest. So what else do we know about this? So the virus was picked up in California, where another new variant, which is called B1429, and apologies for the jargon, we'll get to that in a minute, has been circulating for a while. So B117 has also found its way to California. And what seems to have happened is that an individual was infected with both variants at the same time. And we know that can happen. And that a recombination event occurred, a mashup between the two different viruses, B1429 and B117. And yet again, jargon alert. It's obviously easier to call them the Kent variant and the California variant, but scientists don't like pinning viruses on specific locations. Yeah, and as a proud scion of the county of Kent, I felt some of that stigma. Yeah, exactly. I feel the same if one appeared in Yorkshire. We know that B117 is more transmissible. So what about this B1429? What do we know? Well, I mean, it appears to be more resistant to some antibodies, so it could be escaping the immune response somewhat. And the glaring thing about this recombinant, and again, I'll stress it's just a genome sequence in a database, is that it has both of those superpowers, the bit of B117 that makes it more transmissible and the bit of B1429 that evades antibodies. And I'll stress again that we don't know whether it's out there circulating, but we really do need to keep an eye on it. And do you think there will be more? There will. Uh, Coronaviruses recombine all the time. And the more variants are out there, the more opportunity they have to co-infect an individual and do some mashing up. So I don't think this will be the last that we hear of recombination. Let's take a bit of a time out after all that and tell you about some upcoming events that you might want to participate in to keep your brain stimulated in this difficult time. 
We have a program of online talks lined up throughout the year featuring some of the biggest names in science. There's something for every interest from evolution to AI, quantum theory to your own personal health. Yeah, the next in the series is a personal health one. It's called The Misunderstood Science of Metabolism, and it features Herman Ponser, who has written for the magazine in the past and spent 20 years studying metabolism in different settings all over the world. And he's discovered the rather interesting fact that exercise does not seem to increase our metabolism. That talk's on the 25th of February at 6pm GMT. And we've already sold over a 1,000 tickets, but don't worry, the capacity is infinite. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more book tickets and browse the rest of our events programme. At this point, we were planning to head over to our US office to hear some news from Mars, but they've been hit by our storms and power cuts. So we're going to try and just handle it from the UK. Yeah, ice storms are kind of so last week over here, aren't they? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Mars is looking like a popular destination this month. Yeah, you wait ages for a new Mars mission and then three come along at once. Last week, two craft successfully entered into orbit. They were China's Tianwen-1 and Hope from the United Arab Emirates. And on the day we're recording this, NASA's Perseverance rover, or Perseverance, is due to touch down on the Martian surface, the first lander since 2018, and if successful, only the second since 2012 when Curiosity landed. So Hope from the UAE, I mean, the UAE is not exactly a renowned spacefaring nation, No, this is its first interplanetary mission, and so far it is all going according to plan. The probe is designed to build our most complete picture yet of the Martian atmosphere. Now, Mars hasn't got much of an atmosphere. The atmospheric pressure at its surface is less than 1% of that on Earth, and it's 95% carbon dioxide. But there's still a lot we don't know about it. The probe is now on a two-month testing phase, but has just started to beam back its first images to Earth. And the first one was taken from an altitude of 24,700 kilometres above the Martian surface. Yeah, I've, I've seen that image and it's, it's really stunning. And we'll, we'll post that on Twitter. And what about the Chinese mission? Well, China has been part of an attempted Mars mission before. We, some of you may remember the Yinghuo orbiter. That was actually China's first planetary space probe back in 2011. And it was part of an ill-fated mission actually launched by Russia, the delightfully named Phobos Grunt. But it went horribly wrong. The rockets, due to set it on course for Mars, failed to fire and it got stranded in low Earth orbit and eventually experienced an ignominious splashdown in the Pacific. Well, this time, China is going it alone for the first time. And Tianwen-1 has already gone a whole lot better. And they're really throwing the kitchen sink at Mars this time. As well as the orbiter, there'll be a lander and a rover, which are due to be launched from the orbiter in May. And together, they're aiming to gather data on all kinds of things, really, from the Martian weather to its magnetic field and the, the chemical composition of the dust and rocks on its surface. Ooh, let's hope it all goes to plan. And the NASA mission? Well, as we speak, this is still in the process of navigating to its destination. So fingers crossed, it will be hairy, no doubt. Mars is a a bit of a graveyard for landing craft. More than half of the missions over the years there have ended in failure. And there's no guarantee that Perseverance won't join the list. So what's so hard about trying to land on Mars? Other than that, it's a completely alien environment millions of miles away. (laughs) Well, I mean, it all comes down to that. (laughs) I mean, it's a combination of factors, really. A lot of it is down to that atmosphere, which is thin enough that parachutes don't work particularly well to slow down an incoming space probe to land safely, but thick enough that it generates a whole load of heat. 
and and then there's Mars is rocky, uneven terrain that we don't know particularly well, which can make for a bumpy landing. Like the Curiosity rover, which I mentioned, which landed safely in 2012 and is, is actually still beetling around an area called the Gale Crater, Perseverance will use a complex combination of parachutes, retro rockets, and lastly, a device known as a sky crane to lower it gently down to the surface, we hope. Uh, and if it does get there safely, we are in for a treat. Um, it would be the largest vehicle ever to try to land on Mars. It weighs just over a tonne, so that's like a small car. There's a rover, but also a helicopter, which will be a first. And, and the mission is really focused on two things, searching for signs of past life and preparing the way to send back some Mars rocks to Earth. But for now, I think we should just cross our fingers to say and toes and hope it touches down safely. And then maybe we'll come back to it in a later edition. So by the time this podcast comes out, we'll know the result and we're all keeping our fingers crossed. Uh, and if you're into space exploration, I strongly recommend our weekly newsletter, Launchpad. It's by our US reporter, Leah Crane. Uh, go to newscientist.com slash newsletter and sign up. It's free. And you'll see details of our other free newsletters there too. Last week, we introduced a new section on the show and it was so much fun, we thought we'd do it again. Caroline, you have a child and like many parents, you spent years being bombarded with why, why, why? <laughs> Some people might see that as a burden, but you took your parental responsibility very seriously and started researching proper answers. Yeah, well, he's quite persistent, so I kind of felt like I couldn't fob him off. He's quite, um, the whys just keep coming until you give him an answer, so I didn't have much choice. I still get them, although nowadays I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, last week, last week we tackled two of the classics, what's behind the sky and why is the sky blue? So here's another for you, Caroline. Why do flames jump up and down? Yeah, so this was one, you know, the things he's asked me are usually things that I feel like I should know but don't. So we were sitting in front of the fire and he said, why do flames jump up and down? Um, and, yeah, the answer is that flames are hot and hot air rises and that sort of pulls the point of the flame up. So the flame that you can see is the fuel burning and it's pointed because the hot air is pulling it up and stretching it out until it's really thin. And while that's happening, the air that's further away from the flame is is sinking sort of underneath the flame and then it heats up again and it starts to go around in circles so um you know if I was explaining that to a tiny kid I'd say you know it's almost like the air gets hot and then it runs away from the heat and then it comes you know gets caught okay. again and goes up and up. so all this going around in circles makes the flame dance around um or jump up and down and um, one cool thing I found out when I was finding this answer is that flames don't flicker in space um so because there's no gravity so this is assuming that there's air and fuel, obviously, to make the flame. Um, so they've done experiments with this um, on the International Space Station. So because there's no gravity, there's nothing um, pulling the hot air up and there's nothing pulling the cooler air down. So rather than flickering in space, these sort of flames go into like a, a dome or a sphere. Um, and they do flicker, but a hundred times slower because the oxygen has to sort of drift and diffuse in rather than being pulled in by this circulating air. Actually, I remember seeing a picture of flames in space it was some ISS experiment it was a little bluey dome and there was a clip with an astronaut waving a lit match as well in microgravity where I guess the oxygen was getting in a bit more easily and it looked sort of yellowy but it moved wow. more like a yeah. loopy liquid or lava it was yeah really yeah cool. they're really fascinating they, they kind of look weird and alien which I guess they are because they're in space <laughs> maybe we should find some footage of that and stick it on the Twitter feed as well okay Caroline here's another one uh, I love this one <laughs> 
why aren't people at the South Pole upside down? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I love the way kids think. Because if you imagine how the Earth looked from space, and we've all seen that picture, and if you could zoom in far enough to see the little people standing, some of them would be standing upside down and some of them would be sticking out to the sides and only people at the North Pole would be have their heads pointing up. So, yeah, why don't people at the bottom of the planet feel like they're upside down? Um, so the weird sounding answer is that there is no such thing as up or down in space. So the reason why our heads are in the sky and our feet are on the ground, obviously, is because of gravity. And so rather than, you know, if you think of gravity as pulling towards the middle of the planet rather than down, then, you know, we're all smaller than the Earth. And so we're being pulled downwards by our feet um, and because we're so tiny compared to the Earth gravity acts on us and because everything's being pulled the same way we walk around feeling that everything's the right way up so it doesn't matter where you are um the same thing happens so down is always to the middle of the planet and up is always out towards the sky and even weirder this this ended up i ended up writing an article on on this in the end because it freaked me out that when you think of the earth being in space it isn't really north up the way we think of it it's not really any way up it's kind of floating around and which way up it is depends on where you happen to be looking from so that actually that famous picture that we all think of, of the Earth, that which an astronaut took in 1972, that was actually taken with Antarctica at the top because the astronaut was holding the camera. He was spinning around and he was in space. So NASA turned the picture up the other way so we didn't confuse everybody. So, um, yeah, the real answer is no one's upside down all the right way up. We're all just the same way around, feet to the middle, heads in outer space, and the Earth is kind of floating about. Great. Well, if anyone has a kid's question that they can't answer, do tweet us at newscientistpod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. We'll set Caroline to work on it. Now a story that wouldn't look out of place in Caroline's inbox, uh, which is why is ice slippery? Caroline? (laughs) I think you might be better off finding a physicist for that one. Well, and luckily we have not just one, but two. Anna and Richard, you're both physicists by training. What's the answer? I was a fundamental particle physicist. That sort of thing is way above my pay grade. (laughs) All right, so it's over to me, is it? Our listeners will be thinking I've got it easy after you fielded all the questions about landing a rover on Mars. But this is actually trickier than you think. It turns out this is a question that's been it's a question that's been slipping through physicists' fingers for the past hundred and fifty years. Right. Okay. You had to say that. (laughs) Okay. So the standard answer is that ice is slippery because of a layer of liquid water that allows objects to slide over it. But physicists at the University of Amsterdam, led by Rintz Liefering, have poured some very cold water on that. (laughs) (laughs) You asked for it. Okay. So there have actually been a few issues with the um, water layer theory over the years. The idea was that it's pressure that melts the top of the ice to get that liquid water layer. But calculations showed most people aren't heavy enough to produce enough pressure to melt the ice. So people started looking at friction. And anyway, Liefering and Co. performed a series of experiments where they slid a load of different spherical objects across ice at various temperatures. And they found that a layer of water does lubricate the surface but only under very narrow conditions. So it only works when the object is already sliding at a metre per second or faster. And in fact, there are two other factors that are actually more important, and that's the temperature of the ice and the pressure exerted on the surface of the sliding object. Okay, right. Very clever, yeah. But is it any use? Oh, yes. There's There's lots of situations where sliding rapidly on ice is either desirable or undesirable and this research would help in both arenas the example the researchers pick out in their paper is 
ice skate design, which I suppose is no real surprise. It's there from the Netherlands where speed skating is a huge sport. And the Dutch team finished top of the speed skating medals table at the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea with seven goals out of a possible 14 and 16 medals overall. And we're just a year away from the next Winter Olympics in China. So expect to watch these Dutch skaters positively fly across the ice. A year away from the... I didn't realise it was so soon. I love the Winter Olympics, right? In my house, we call it the World Sliding Championships because it's basically every conceivable way of competitively sliding around on ice and snow. And, I, you know, there are still some doubts over whether the Summer Olympics can take place in Tokyo this year. And as you say, the Winter Olympics exactly a year away. Dare we dream of them actually happening? Oh, you've got a dream. I might just go for a cycle around London's Olympic Park and soak up the memories instead. <laughs> That's all we've got, the memories. <laughs> anyway, I'm going off piste, as it were, here a little bit. A few weeks uh, back, we had a story in the mag about why food sometimes sticks to frying pans. So it's almost like physicists have given up on the hard stuff, like, you know, discovering what lies beyond the standard model of particle physics. No and way. Have decided to tackle decided to tackle some of the things we probably all thought they probably nailed years ago. Oh, like I say, the physicist's motto is don't sweat the big stuff. <laughs> my my favourite example was when they turned their attention a few years ago to how you can stay upright while riding a bicycle and <laughs> discovered the laws of physics couldn't explain it. As, as far as I know, we still don't know the answer. Well, Caroline, your, your son needs to send some of his questions direct to the physicist and that will keep him busy for a while. Yeah, or he needs to get a job and start answering the questions himself. You know, maybe <laughs> pay attention at school. <laughs> yeah, if, if he can crack the bicycle one, he'd probably win a Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah, it'll make me very proud. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out our sister show, Escape Pod. And thanks, Richard and Caroline, for joining us. And remember to go to newscientist.com slash pod twenty for a bargain deal on a subscription. So it's goodbye for now. Good luck to NASA. Look after your physical and mental health. And goodbye. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Ollie Giu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 